we'll be in Luke chapter 8, if you want to turn there. <clears throat> Lord, we are so thankful for your word, God. It is a lamp and a light, Lord. It directs our life. It's truth, Lord. It's an anchor uh, in the storm, Lord. And, and we go through storms. We go through trials. We go through difficulties, God. Sometimes we coast through this life until difficulty strikes or trouble comes. And, and then uh, many of us, Lord, and we see people, they turn to you in desperation. And uh, I pray this morning, Lord, uh, that we'd have an ear to hear what you would have to say, Lord, that we'd be desperate for what your word tells us, God, and that we would have an ear to hear what you would say to us, God. So we give you this morning, Jesus, we want to lift you up, Lord, and pray that you draw men to yourself, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Last week we saw uh, at the, the end, we ended up in verse 39 last week, and Jesus heals Two men who were demon-possessed. And they wanted him to get out of the town. Get away. They cared more about the pigs that went over the cliff than these men that, that, that were sitting at Jesus' feet in the right mind, healed. And it says, verse 40, So it was when Jesus returned that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. So probably Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee, probably went to Capernaum, uh, back to where his home base is. That's where Peter lives. And so Jesus goes back there. And if you remember back in chapter 7, that's where uh, the Roman centurion, his servant was sick. And he looked for Jesus. He actually sent messengers and said, Jesus, listen, you don't have to come to my house. Just say a word. My servant will be healed. And, and Jesus says, man, I haven't seen that kind of faith, not even in Israel. And so that guy, and what was so impressive, why people love that Roman centurion who would normally be very disliked, this guy cared about Israel. This guy cared about the Jews. He cared about the God of Israel. And they said when they told Jesus that he's worthy, one of the reasons was this guy built a synagogue for the Jews. He cared that much about the people and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he built them a synagogue there in Capernaum. So Probably we're going to be introduced to a few people here uh, at the end of the chapter, and very significant because probably this guy, this Roman centurion, knew the guy we're going to be introduced to here. He's the one guy in this whole story that we know his name. And he probably told this guy because this guy was desperate for some help. The way many people are in this life, man, we cruise through this life, everything's okay, and then all of a sudden something happens, and we become very desperate, and we want answers, and we need help. And that's what happens to this guy. We're going to read, uh, starting in verse 41, it says this, and behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, probably the very synagogue that that Roman centurion built. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. And, and, and now a woman having a flow of blood, that's her menstrual cycle, for 12 years. And who had spent all of her live, livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. 
And she came from behind, and he touched, she touched the border of his garment, and immediately the flow of blood was stopped. And Jesus says, who touched me? And when all denied it, Peter and those who were with him said, Master, the multitudes are thronging and pressing you, and you say, who touched me? But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, and she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And Jesus said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Jairus, uh, two worlds collide here in this crowd, this crowd that was anticipating Jesus coming back. Like he left and now he's coming back. And there's this crowd and they're anticipating, and it's massive. And we have two people contrasted here. We have one guy who's a ruler of the synagogue. It's a position that you would be voted into. So all the people in that area would vote him as a ruler. And he would be the guy that oversees everything that's done in the synagogue. That everything was, is, is in its proper place, in its proper order. He would have the right readings, the right rabbis. All the things would happen in the synagogue based on how this guy ruled it. And he would have all kinds of connections and friends. He would be wealthy. He would be... Uh, very connected with people in the community, whether it was doctors, and, and he just knew people. He had tons of friends. People liked him. And he had everything going for him. He had, the inference is probably he not only just had uh, one daughter, it, it was probably his only child. And she's sick. But for 12 years, she's fine. For 12 years, everything's going great. And he's probably busy with the synagogue, busy going, you know, serving there, doing everything, making sure everything runs great. Looking at his daughter as she's growing, 12 years old, and all of a sudden she's sick and she's ready to die. And he's probably gone to every doctor in the area, probably even brought her to Jerusalem, exhausted every option that he had for this little girl that he loved. It, it, and you know how it is when kids get sick. Uh, if you have kids, I remember uh, once or twice having kids with a high fever, and and you know you're like you have to get in this tub, and you have to. It's got to be a cold. And who I hate cold water. I probably hate cold water more than anyone here. I'm pretty sure. I don't like cold water. I, in the middle of the summer, it can be 90-some degrees, and I refuse to get in our pool. The kids are like, come on, Dad, get in. It's hot out. I'm like, no. Is the water 90? No, I'm not getting in. But I remember a couple times like thinking the only way, I remember Lydia, maybe a couple other ones, but she was running high fever and thinking, all right, I'll get in with her in a cold bath and, and you know, as a dad, you feel like you'd do anything for your kids to make them better. Like, we want this fever to go down. I remember jumping in the tub, getting in there. I maybe just stayed on my feet. I don't know if I really got in all too far. But, you know, trying to run cold water over her head. I can't imagine this guy knows his daughter's dying. He's at his, last, at his wit's end, like, what do I do? 
And he's a ruler of the synagogue. He knows rabbis. He knows doctors. He knows all the people. And no help. Very famous person in that area, known by everybody. But there's no help. And, and then we meet a woman who, for 12 years, something happened in her life. 12 years ago, the same time this little girl was born, something happened in this woman's life. And she may have been married, we don't know. Uh, but certainly, Leviticus chapter 15 talks about uh, when that happens, uh, that menstrual cycle and something happens like that, that you're, uh, um, you're, you're deemed unclean. You can't go to the synagogue. You can't be, eventually, you can't be around people in your family because if you come in contact, if you sit where she sat, or if you are where she is, you become unclean, which isn't the end of the world, but it would be, become uh, uh, very inconvenient for people to be her friend, for her husband to stay married. It would be something that was uh, viable for divorce. So if she was married, in the course of this tw these 12 years, her life has spiraled downhill to, to the lowest possible place she could be at the end of 12 years, desperate. We don't even know her name. And two worlds collide here. This guy who's at the top of you know, the world, really, in Capernaum, and then this woman, we don't even know who she is. But her world's falling apart. She's lost, lost friends, family, probably her husband. She can't go to the synagogue because she's unclean. She's lost everything. She's losing hope. And at the end of 12 years, she's like, man, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, if I could just get close to what, what else? What else? It says in another gospel that not only did she spend all her living, that it says that she suffered many things at the hand of physicians. She became someone that they tested on. And she suffered and suffered and, and used all of her money, all of her resources no friends, no place to go. She's desperate. And so is this guy. He's desperate too. Like, where do I go in my life? What do I do? I've tried everything. What's next? And for her, it's been a gradual decline. For Jairus, it's been sudden. Just like that. And that's the way it is for some people. You see a life that's in decline over the years, over the years, maybe bad choices, circumstances of life. And people wind up at church. And then sometimes it's something very sudden. And you see somebody and you wonder, what, what brought them to church? Why do they want to hear God's word? What is bringing somebody to church? What's, are they desperate? Because the disciples are going to learn something about this, that there's... Casual contact with Jesus, people that are interesting, interested in, in like, what's going on? What's he doing? There's some, you know, people are fans of Jesus. Man, that's so cool. You know, I, you know, my friend told me that he did this the other day. Let's go out and see him. I hear he's in the neighborhood. And there's people that just have casual contact with Jesus. They just want to come out and, and see what's going to happen next. Or, but then there's some people that are in, in, in desperate need that are at the, the, the last, last ditch effort to try to find some help or some hope in this life. 
And that's where these two people are at. There's some peripherals uh, with the people that we're introduced to. The disciples are there. There's this crowd. There's going to be a crowd, uh, as we keep reading, in Jairus' home. There's this little girl and, and, and then this little girl's mom, all touched by what's going on here. And Jairus goes and he, and, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. He said, I have an only daughter about 12 years old and she's dying. And it says, as he went. So Jesus is going to his house, verse 42. And it says, the multitudes thronged him. That word thronged means to choke, to suffocate, right? If you've ever been to a concert, like any Christian concert I've been to hasn't been suffocating, but you know, I've been to concerts before I got saved and pushed my way to the front row, and it's, you know, you got to be careful, right? People are pushing and shoving, and it's, you're crowded. There's not a lot of room to spread out or, you know, to do whatever, or if you've been to a sporting event, a Bills game or a, uh, you know, a game and people are coming in or going out or you try to go to the bathroom, like people, listen, and this guy is going nuts with this crowd and it's choking him. And all he wants to do, and I, you can picture the guy out in front, like, come on, go this way. And he's pushing people. Hey, excuse me. And people see him. Oh yeah, we know him. And he's pushing and pushing his way through. And then this woman comes out of nowhere. Where does she come from? If you've ever had to push your way through a crowd, you know, you try to get behind the biggest person and you're following him, right? Like, you, you lead the way. Well, this girl comes and she touches the hem of Jesus' garment. What was so important about that? The hem of his garment, nothing. Except for a rabbi would wear a robe and it would be like a blue uh, uh, ribbon maybe around it with some tassels. And she says, man, if I could just touch that think that would help me. Superstition. Not even true. Like, if I could touch his garment, that would help me. And it wasn't, the, and, and Jesus is going to correct that for her, but it wasn't the touch. It wasn't the garment that did anything. It was her faith coming to Jesus Christ. Lord, I know you can help me. I know you can help if I come to you. And so, the woman, having this flow of blood for 12 years, spent all her livelihood on physicians, and she, she couldn't be healed by any of them. She came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately the flow of blood stopped. And Jesus does something amazing. If you've ever been in that crowded situation, Jesus probably stops, and, and he says this, Who touched me? And all denied it. Like, who was denying it? Not me. I didn't do it. Probably people were bumping them, elbowing them, pushing people. I mean, it, it's a little chaotic. And people were denying it. It wasn't me. I didn't. Maybe people were getting tripped or I don't know. But some people denied it. I don't know why. But Peter and those with him, probably the disciples said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you. And you say, who touched me? Like, it would, it would be easier to say, who didn't touch you? Because everyone's touching him. Everyone's trying to you know, grab him and touch him and ask him a question and do all these different things. But one person in the whole crowd was desperate. One person of everybody there 
in that crowd was desperate enough to grab the hem of his garment because she needed help. She didn't have any more resources at home. There was no more money there. She didn't have any friends to lean on, to call up. Oh, man, I'll make it through. Can I just talk to you tonight? Yeah. All right, I can make it through another day. She didn't have a friend. She didn't have money. There's nothing for her. And finally, she's desperate enough to break through the crowd. She probably knocked people over. People probably pushed her. Hey, what's your problem? She gets to him. And Jesus is like, who touched me? And the disciples are like, what do you mean? Who touched you? What does that even mean? And Jesus said, somebody touched me, for, for I perceived power going out of me. I know somebody touched me, for real, that it meant something. A lot of people make declarations of faith. A lot of people come to the Lord you know, for help, and then maybe they get it, and then they're gone. But they come for you know, the motive was not like this woman. This woman is going to stay. This woman's healed, restored. Because she came in desperation and in real need of help. And the disciples are learning something kind of in the peripheral of all this. They recognize that there's people that come to Jesus that don't have a desperate need, that are around it. They're just fans of Jesus. And it was good for them to learn that and to understand that because they'll have a lot of people coming to them with questions and, and, and uh, pursuing different things. And people will come and go and come and go and come and go out of the disciples' lives. And this woman couldn't hide it. In verse 47, it says, The woman saw she was not hid. She came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And so now her faith is public. Yeah, I did come to Jesus. Right? That's an important thing. That people know what Jesus did in her life. That's her testimony. She didn't have, in fact, the way she came to Jesus wasn't even, uh, it, was, it was superstitious. I just touch his garment. A little bit, you know, I came out of a church that a rosary bead meant something. There was, you know, different things that are, aren't like biblical, but some people do that and they actually get saved. They're like, I got to get to the Lord. What, is this going to help? And they start somewhere. And then Jesus meets them right there and superstition or whatever it is, and takes him beyond that to real faith and understanding of who he really is and what the Bible really says and the truth of the word. And so her faith becomes real. She had a testimony. It was a marked change in her life and a difference. And then Jesus says this in verse 48. He says, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. He says this for a few reasons. Why does Jesus tell her that publicly in front of everybody? He wants people to know that this woman is different and she's clean now. She's okay to be around. That her life is different. 
And she wants this woman to know that her life is clean. She's healed. Right? Because some people come to the Lord, man, and the devil comes right in, tries to steal everything God has done in your life and has told you and the truth of the word of God. He wants to tell you, you're not saved. That's not real. That's not true. And Jesus makes sure to tell her, listen, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And he clarifies the superstition in her life. That it wasn't, it wasn't that you touched the hem of my garment. It was that you had faith. That's what makes the difference. It was the faith of this woman, not the garment of Jesus, not the hem of his garment, not that, that ribbon or whatever it was. Corrected that. And he puts her in this position. He says, daughter. It's the only place, I believe, in the Gospels that Jesus calls somebody that endearing term, daughter. He puts her in a position as a child. Imagine being adopted. It says this. If you want to turn to John chapter 1 with me just for a second. John chapter 1, verse 11 says this. Speaking of Jesus and coming to the Jews, it says, He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus is talking there or John is talking there about Jesus and talking about what happens to a life that's actually born again. You're now a son or a daughter of God. You're adopted into a family, and now God is taking care of you. There's promises for your life. There's somebody that's overseeing your life and the things going on, and he actually cares about what's happening to you. And what's taking place? Jesus is a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, the Bible says. That he looks on the multitude, we read, with compassion. He saw them as sheep having no shepherd. And compassion, somebody who's compassionate, hurts when you hurt. They have your pain in their heart. They're like, man, I I understand what you're going through. I know what that feels like. How can I help? I want to help you. I want to step in. And that's what Jesus does. You read it over and over in the Gospels. Jesus comes into contact with someone and their pain becomes his pain. And he wants to touch a life. He wants to change a life. He wants to enter into your sufferings and walk you through them and help you through them. Right? This world's tough. It's going to be full of pain and disappointment and trouble. It's coming. It's coming. But when, and and he says, daughter, now you're mine. I'm going to look. You've lost your family, friends, your position in the synagogue. You can't even go. But guess what? I'm watching out for your life now. You're my daughter. You're my son. I care for your life. 
Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And you kind of forget about Jairus here for a second, that he's standing there like, what are we doing? Like, that's cool and all, but I've got a bigger problem. This girl will make it another day, probably. Right? He's sweating it, stressing out, like, why did we have to stop? Can't you talk, walk and talk at the same time? You know, I don't know. He's, he's probably stressing out. And now his worst fear comes to pass, his worst nightmare. He's panicking. And then it says, while Jesus is still speaking, while he's still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying, your daughter's dead. Don't trouble the teacher. All the emotion, probably anger, now it's confirmation of his worst nightmare, questioning, oh man, I knew he couldn't help. I knew this wasn't going to work. I don't know why I came and put up all this trouble trying to follow Jesus or listen to him or think that he was actually going to help me. Why did I do that? But the mistake they make They said, don't trouble the teacher. Jesus is way more than a teacher, isn't he? Jesus is way more than a teacher. He is a teacher. If you were never born again, you didn't become a Christian, obviously you're not going to heaven, but you'd be a pretty good person here on earth. Be a nice guy, a nice girl. The world would be a different place if people just obeyed the teachings of Jesus. Be pretty good, right? If you if you broke down on the side of the road and you know uh, at midnight in Rochester or Buffalo or a big city, and all of a sudden you see these guys walking down the road, and you knew they came just got out of Bible study, you'd be like, "Oh, thank God, you can help me." Hey, do you, is there a good? Can you give me a ride to a gas station? Or but if they came out of the, of a bar or a suspicious building, you might not approach them. You might get a little more worried. Why? Because Jesus transforms lives. Just his teachings. If, someone, if you said, you know what, I'm not going to steal, not going to commit adultery, not going to kill, not going to lie, like those are pretty good qualities, but Jesus is way more than a teacher. He's a savior. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He comes into a life to save you, to help you. There's power in his life. He's more than just a teacher. But they say, don't trouble the teacher, the, ma- the, the, the rabbi. Jesus is way more than that. And, and this, the, Jairus is going to find out. He couldn't prove if this woman got healed. For Jairus, what was that to him? Maybe she got healed. Maybe she didn't. It was a nice little speech Jesus just gave. But Jesus, when he heard it, he answered him saying, and looking at Jairus, he says, don't be afraid. Only believe she'll be made well. What a scripture to hold on to. Of of anything you can imagine what the guy was thinking, how he was feeling, mad, sad, angry, whatever. One thing we know he was, 
was afraid because Jesus said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he says, only believe. Only believe. And we were watching a movie last night, and I was up here studying last night, and I went home, and Rebecca had uh, Woodlawn, if you've ever seen that on, and uh, uh, Tony, I can't remember his last name, that was the running back. Um, I can't remember. But, you know, when he first started playing, and, and he put in, he says, hey, Tony, you're starting tonight. And he started, and the, the, right on the back of his helmet, he, you know, he scored a touchdown. It says, no fear, believe. It was funny. You know, I was just studying this scripture, and, and, and so amazing, God's promises. Don't be afraid, just believe. And then what he tagged on that for this, the promise for this guy she'll be made well. That's not what he tells everybody. I think he would tell everyone, hey, don't be afraid. Just believe. Right? Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1 says there's exceeding great and precious promises for us. I think somebody counted uh, uh, 4,457 or 74, something like that, promises in the Bible. And, and when things get hard and things get tough, you only need one or two that you just hold on to, like, I need that promise. For this guy, it was she's going to be made well. For you, it might be something else. For you, you might be glad that, oh, I'm glad your daughter's okay. But for you, you need a different promise. But the reality for this guy, for this man, and for that girl, this wasn't it. We're going to see, it says this, when he came to the house, he permitted that no one go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and the mother of the girl, and all wept and mourned for her. But he said, don't weep. She's not dead. She's sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, little girl, arise. And her spirit returned. This is a tent. This is all that this is, is a tent. It's temporary. You know, I would have, you know, if I had to pick the tent I was going to be in, it would have looked a little different than this, probably. I would probably be playing basketball somewhere in the NBA or, you know. My tent would have looked different if I got to pick. But we all have different tents, and they're all temporary. They're all very temporary, right? Darren talked about it yesterday at the men's breakfast, that our life is just a vapor gone. Just like that. And this guy, this dad, understood that. He probably regretted the time he spent in the synagogue making things better, or the extra time at work, or the extra time. Probably thought, why didn't I spend more time with her? Why did I work on the weekends? Or why did I put more hours in? And when, when stuff like this happens, you, you reassess your life, how you live, and what you were living for. And what you're doing, and what your goal is. But for this girl, you know what? One day, she's going to die. Her tent's going to wear out. Your tent's going to wear out. My tent's going to wear out. And all that matters, because the Bible says we're all going to stand before the Lord one day, all that matters is what you did with Jesus Christ. That's what's going to matter. That's it. 
What did you do with my son? That's what you're going to stand before the Lord one day, the Bible says, and give an account. And the first question is, what did you do with my son? Not that he doesn't know, but you and I need to remember. That's going to be it. It's just a tent we're living in. And Jesus, you know, the scene is he goes to his house and there's professional mourners. People would be playing a flute uh, that it would be hired. This guy probably had tons of mourners. He knew tons of people. But there would be people playing music and people wailing, screaming. You, the closer you got to the house, the more you'd hear screaming and crying. Some people were professionals. Some people were really sad. They knew this little girl. Can you imagine his only daughter, how she grew up in the synagogue? When we had Lydia, uh, she was the first grandchild for five, six years. She was the, our only child for five or six years. She was spoiled. Like we brought her everywhere. Her, you know, her aunts and uncles bought her everything. She had motorized toys. You know, she was the life of the party. She was, and that's what this girl was. At the synagogue, oh, there's Jairus' daughter. Hey, you know, give her this, give her that. And now she's dying. And all these mourners would be there, and, and they literally, it says that they ridiculed Jesus for what he said. They didn't believe. Even though Jesus said, hey, don't weep. Stop mourning. She's not dead. She's sleeping. They didn't understand. They will. They will, but you know what certainly happens? You know what certainly happens? Some of these people that see this miracle, people that were weeping, people that were playing the flute, they probably went away with zero faith. Ah, she must not have been really dead. Yeah, he was right. She's only sleeping. Who was that doctor? Don't hire him again. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He said she was dead. Right? And that's how it looks in this life with some of the things we go through. Things look dead, like there's no help, there's nothing. What can you do? And then Jesus steps in and changes everything. And they ridiculed him, and he puts everyone out. And he took the girl by the hand and said, little girl, arise. In Mark's gospel, it says, telethakumai, which means uh, uh, little lamb. He grabs her by the hand and, and just calls her a little lamb and, and lifts her up so tenderly. It says her spirit returns, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. How do you know when God does a work in someone's life? How do you know when someone's born again, that they're born not of uh, uh, flesh and blood, but of the spirit? Their appetite. What's their appetite? If you want to know if you're born again today, if you're a Christian, because a lot of people say they're Christians. They, you know, if you, you, you surveyed America, I don't know what the stats are, but we would claim to be a Christian nation. And people, if you asked them individually, you know, what religion are you? A lot of people, most people would say, I'm Christian, of course. I'm a Christian. Well, what does it mean? Well, I can tell you the, to identify yourself as a Christian, what's your appetite? Do you love the Word of God? Spiritual appetite. And it changes a life. A spiritual appetite matters. He says, give her something to eat. Some people say that 
Jesus said that because the mom was so, like, didn't know what to do. Like, oh, why don't you go get her some food? Okay, I'll go, you know. But appetite matters. If you're wondering if you're a Christian today, ask yourself, what's your appetite? Do you hunger for the word of God? you hunger to be in church and fellowship, spiritual things? He commanded to give her something to eat, and her parents were astonished. And he charged them to tell no one what, what had happened. Why? You know, there's a lot of charges in the Bible. Go preach the gospel. You know, whatever. There's things that the Bible says to be vocal about. But he tells these guys, hey, don't say anything. Because sometimes things happen in your life or God is speaking to you or doing something in your life just between you and him. Just he wants to tell you something so specific for you to remind you something. Not the whole, the whole world doesn't need. You'll tell this, this small group of people, no, the disciples were there, her parents, this little girl, just a small group that's healthy you can talk to and be reminded. Jesus, as you read the Gospels, does miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, because he's trying to reach people. Not to just make people better. Not to just make you a better person or me a better person or keep you alive a little longer. He wants to save your soul. Wants to save my soul. And he did. It's by belief. And the miracles Jesus did, people witness them, witness them. It says this in John 10. You want to turn there with me? We're going to close right here. John chapter 10, verse 22, it says this. I'll just read it quickly. Now, it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch, and the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? Like, I don't know why they're doubting. Jesus has performed miracles and teachings and but they say, how long do you keep us in doubt? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, verse 25, I told you, and you don't believe. And the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And, and I give them eternal life, and they never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then he says, I and my Father are one. And the Jews took up stones again to stone him, right? Because every time Jesus says, I and the Father are one, I'm equal with God, I am God, the Jews are like, are you, and they want to stone him for blasphemy. They took up stones again to stone him, and Jesus said, hey, Many good works have I shown you from my Father. 
for which of those works do you stone me? And the Jews answered, said, for a good work, we're not stoning you. We've seen those. But for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus didn't deny that fact. He says, is it not written in your law that I said that you are gods, or literally you are judges, that you can see a situation as Jews growing up with that faith, that you can identify and be a judge of a circumstance? That you're judges. And if he called them gods or judges to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I'm the Son of God? If I do not the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you don't believe me, don't believe my words, believe the works that you might know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of, his, out of their hand. Uh, they want to kill him because of who he is. But he says, listen, if you don't believe my words, and he'll, he'll repeat it again in John chapter 14 to his intimate group, to the disciples that, that ask him, you know, show us the Father. He's like, believe me for the works. What have you been seeing me do? And that's the works, what right now, you know, miracles, there's things happening in, in people's lives all across the world. But the greatest miracle is a saved soul, a transformed life, a life that was heading in a, 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 a direction of destruction and hell, and they're changed. They're transformed lives. And Jesus says, listen, if you don't believe my words, just look at one of my disciples. Look at their life. Look at what I'm doing. You can't deny that fact, what, what he's doing in a life. So Jesus, uh, back in Luke, his parents were astonished, and he said, don't tell anyone what had happened. Don't tell anyone. What you can tell people is what God, your testimony matters in this world. Wherever you go, God has sprinkled you in this world. Your testimony matters. If we read chapter 8 all together, uh, it would be the same thing as Jesus told uh, the, the demoniac. Go back into your country and tell them what God has done for you. Just go be a witness. Be faithful. You know, we all want to hear, this is what you want to hear at the end of the day. The investment that you make in this life matters, and it's the investment in the kingdom of God. Because one day you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Servant, that's all you need to be. Well done, good and faithful servant. It doesn't say scholar. It doesn't say Bible teacher. It doesn't say prophet. It says, well done, good and faithful servant. Are you serving the Lord today? Ask yourself that question. How are you serving the Lord? Are you a testimony wherever God has sprinkled you? That's what matters. Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we get to do. It's a privilege. So, Lord, we just give you our lives, God. We thank you for the testimony of these two people, Lord. Lives that you touched from two different worlds. One, a gradual... gradual uh, uh, One, one uh, a gradual disintegration of, of a life, a family, a, 
just her whole life slowly falling apart and one very sudden a life so young being snuffed out and yet they're both very desperate for you Lord I pray that you would make our hearts desperate for you Lord our, our life is a vapor we're here for such a short time but what we do in this life matters through eternity number one being born again being a Christian uh, number two, how we get to serve you through eternity and worship you and walk with you. It matters what we do. So I pray that you, that you would remind us of that, Lord, in your name. Amen. I pray we're all desperate for the Lord, that in desperation we reach out because he wants to touch our lives. He cares about every little thing that we're going through. And uh, to some people it might be minor, uh, but it's, it's, it's what we're going through and it creates anxiety and fear like this guy, and, and Jesus would say, don't fear, but believe, and grab the scriptures that God has given you, uh, his promises, there's lots of them, you should know a few of them, grab onto those.